Tonight's Ideas program was originally broadcast in June 1987. Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, with the second and final program in our series, Heroic Measures, Dilemmas in the Care of Sick Children. Tonight's program focuses on the right of parents to be involved in the decisions about the care and treatment of their sick children. We'll introduce you to the Gordons, a family who lost the custody of their infant son when they wouldn't consent to the treatment doctors proposed for him. I really felt like a, an animal whose child is being, or whose, whose offspring is being taken away by another wild animal. I just had this real instinct to protect the child because I felt that the whole attitude was so unreasonable and so uh, aggressive. You'll meet an intensive care nurse who feels that parents deserve much more say in the hospital care of their children. The hospital system has devised all kinds of explanations on of what is proper behavior for parents and for children. And if you don't fit these little roles that we've carved out for you, well, you're a problem parent. And we'll consider some of the ethical questions involved in the intensive care of children. For example, when to stop treatment. It's an awesome decision. And we ought not to become habituated to life and death decisions. I don't think we should bureaucratize it. I don't think we should institutionalize it. It should be recognized, frankly, for what it is, an awesome decision. Issues in the care and treatment of sick children. Tonight on Ideas. Our series is written and presented by David Cayley. Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. It was here on December 12th of last year that Don and Agnes Gordon brought their seven and a half month old son, Andrew. A week later, he was a ward of the children's aid. That evening, the baby was listless, feverish, and anemic, and the doctor who admitted him to emergency decided to keep him in the hospital for further tests. Two days later, the Gordons were told the results. Don and I were called into a private uh, conference room or a lounge uh, by Dr. Sonley and uh, an intern. And uh, we sat down on a couch and we were told that Andrew had leukemia. It was uh, very devastating to us. We broke down. We asked for some time alone. And then uh, the doctors came back and um, told us that um, Andrew had a very rare kind of leukemia and uh, a very difficult one to treat. It's uh, called acute myelogenous myelomonocytic leukemia, and the short term for it is AMML. They um, told us that uh, they were going to start him on chemotherapy immediately. They were going to send him up to the operating room right away, and they were going to insert a main line into his chest and into his jugular vein so that they could start chemotherapy as soon as possible. And after that, they were going to, when the chemotherapy treatment was over, they were going to give him some radiation treatment and... Um, then they were going to subtype our children to see if there was a match for his bone marrow. And um, 
if there was a match, they were going to give him a bone marrow transplant and everything would be just fine. He would, that they told us that these days, um, <clears throat> leukemia is very easily treated. And um, probably he would end up going to university and everything would work out very well. This made us really suspicious because we had a nephew that died two years previously of leukemia and it was a very horrible experience uh, for the whole family. And we knew what that child had gone through and his leukemia was a much easier leukemia to treat. This nephew had also been treated at the hospital for sick children. His treatment had been unsuccessful and the powerful drugs used in his chemotherapy had eventually ruptured his bowel. Don Gordon recalled once seeing these drugs spill onto the floor where they burned a hole in the tiles. Their nephew's death was very much on their minds as they weighed the situation in which they now found themselves. That's uh, what made it so difficult is that we knew about this very dark, ugly side uh, that this chemotherapy treatment can take. And uh, it seemed that, looking back on it, that the doctors at the hospital were talking about this as if it was a trip to the Bahamas. It was this attitude of everything is just going to be fine and it's going to work out well and we're going to first do this and second do this. And it was a very almost like a flag-waving kind of presentation. And uh, that immediately put me on the defensive. I got very scared and very frightened because I think that if people had really sat down with me and leveled with me at that point, I would have felt a lot more trust. Right away, I told the doctor that we had hesitations because of our nephew's experience and that we needed time to think about this, that we couldn't just sign the consents and send him up to the operating room instantly. And that's where the problem started. Disagreement continued for the next three days. The doctors argued that a quick start on chemotherapy was Andrew's only chance for life. The Gordons equivocated. They had made up their minds that they were going to start chemotherapy, and we had not made up our minds. So we kept on asking for time um, to make up our minds and to consult with other doctors. We wanted a second medical opinion, an independent opinion from the Hospital for Sick Children. We wanted to check into the possibilities of any alternative treatments that might not be so difficult for the child and so cruel. And uh, we also wanted more information. And we found that there was no offer at all of either a, a period of time for us to be able to, to get our own information or to consult with other doctors, that uh, there was a constant pressure put on us to make up our minds immediately. And that was very difficult, and I, I found that it just, uh, um, I really felt like a, an animal uh, whose child is being, or whose, whose offspring is being taken away by another wild animal. I just had this real instinct to protect the child because I felt that the whole attitude was so unreasonable and so uh, aggressive. What might have been a dialogue had become a stalemate. 
the Gordons remained unconvinced that the benefits of chemotherapy would outweigh the risks. I have been unable to find out what the doctors were thinking, because no one involved in the case would agree to an interview. Despite my persistent requests, both of the main doctors involved argued that it would be inappropriate and even unethical for them to comment on a case still under their care. Eventually, it was agreed that I would interview the hospital's chief of pediatrics, Dr. Bob Haslam. He would not comment on the case directly, but would discuss with me the general considerations involved in such a case. I have to look through the eyes of a physician who looked at a, a child and said, I think that we have a treatment for that child that I think could benefit that child. And whether the outcome for success, however we were going to define that, was 40% or 16%, I think that those are the sorts of decisions that we have to make every day. Uh, I think my role is to try and ask what any reasonable person would try and do for that child who's in a situation that he, he or she can't make up their mind for themselves. I think we have to divest ourselves from what's in the best interest of everybody else and focus on that child. What would the child, given the ability to make this decision, prefer? Do you think it's possible to do that? Do you think it's possible for you to, in effect, separate the child from what he is not actually separate from, i.e. his parents, and say what is in the best interest of the child as opposed to what is in the best interest of the family. Well, fortunately, once again, this happens very rarely, but when it happens, uh, I have to stand back and ask the question, is this decision that's being made by the parents in the best interest of the child? And if I firmly believe that it's not, I have recourse I, I can't make that decision, but I have recourse to see if a decision can be made because we have a, a conflict. The parents and I have a conflict on what we think is the best in the best interest of that child. I can't make that decision, nor can you. I think the only way that that decision can be made is in the court of law. And that's where the Gordon's case eventually was settled. The process began five days after Andrew was first admitted to the hospital. On the evening of December 17th, Dr. Victor Blanchett called the Catholic Children's Aid and asked them to apprehend Andrew Gordon. This followed a lengthy meeting between Dr. Blanchett and the Gordons. These are Agnes Gordon's recollections of that meeting. Dr. Blanchett um, basically outlined to us the, what the treatment would involve. And uh, it was a two and a half year treatment uh, with a lot of decisions to be made all along the line, depending on how Andrew responded to the treatment. He kept on talking about the fact that certain decisions would be made in consultation with the parents. When he was finished, I asked him what he meant by consultation with the parents, whether he meant that there would be some mutual decision-making process involved here. And he said that there wouldn't be, that essentially the doctors would inform us what the decisions were. I asked him during that interview whether he could tell me what had happened to these children, to children with AMML that were under one year of age. And he, uh, he wouldn't tell me anything. He didn't give me any information. I asked him how many of these children were diagnosed at this hospital every year, and he said, oh, maybe two or three. And I said, what happened to those children? Can you tell me what has happened to some of these children? 
and he wouldn't he just refused to give me an answer he kept on talking about other things and changing the subject finally he told us that we had to start chemotherapy right away i said that um we still had didn't have enough information to make up our minds about this treatment and uh especially given the fact that he made it so clear that we had no decision-making power through the treatment, and we were talking about the two and a half years down the line, uh, we just felt that we couldn't uh, consent to this, this whole package as they were giving it to us. So um, he told us that, again that he could enforce it by law and that he could force us to treat Andrew, at which point I got very angry. So uh, I just took the baby and I walked out of the room. I told him that as far as I was concerned, this meeting was finished. I I had nothing more to say or to add to it. And I left the room. We received a telephone call December 17th at 9.30 at night from Dr. Blanchett, the Hospital for Sick Children. Diane Lister, a lawyer with the Catholic Children's Aid Society of Metropolitan Toronto. And that came through our night duty service, which covers emergency calls after hours. And as a result of his call, there was a night duty worker who went out to speak with Mrs. Gordon and to assess the situation. And as a result of her assessment, she apprehended the child, meaning that from a legal point of view, that the child was in our care and we had to go back to court to determine whether the child ought to remain in our care. What did Dr. Blanchett say that evening? His evidence was that the child had acute non-lymphoblastic leukemia, that it was fatal, that treatment was necessary, that the parents were resisting treatment, and in fact there was a concern that they may remove the child from the hospital. Well, I was half asleep with Andrew, and uh, a social worker from the Catholic Children's Aid walked into the room with a resident doctor, And uh, she asked me whether I planned to to remove the child from the hospital. And I looked at her and I said, do I look as if I'm going to leave the hospital? I was in my nightgown half asleep. (laughs) And uh, she didn't uh, have any comments. She eventually broke down and started to cry. She asked me whether I objected to her putting this notice explaining that Andrew would be a ward of the Catholic Children's Aid on the wall in front of the bed. I told her that it didn't bother me at all because I didn't have anything to be ashamed of, um, that I was just doing what I felt was right. And uh, I told her that that would be entirely up to her. And she could not put the notice up in front of the bed because I guess that was, that was the symbol that she had apprehended this baby that was nursing at my breast. So she eventually walked out and left it at the nursing station with the nurses. When the children's aide apprehends what the law calls a child in need of protection, it must put the matter before a court within five days. In this case, the hearing was scheduled for 2.30 the following day. The Gordons found out about it at 2.15. They rushed to the Jarvis Street courtroom in a taxi, with Agnes Gordon still in her slippers. On the way there, their hastily hired lawyer withdrew from the case. The hearing was rescheduled for the next day, and the judge, at the Gordon's request, agreed to hold it at the hospital, 
so that Agnes Gordon could continue nursing Andrew. It was held in the hospital's boardroom. Diane Lister represented the Catholic Children's Aid. Hospital records were admitted as exhibits on the hearing on December 19, and I read into the record in my submissions a quote from the hospital records, and I have it here, December 17th. It's a social work note. Both parents state they would like to take Andrew home without treatment with the understanding that medical staff think Andrew would die. This is before we're involved. This is a nursing note. There's other references in here in terms of the parents wanting to check out alternative clinics in New Mexico, their unwillingness to accept ideas of orthodox medicine, the fact that they are... I mean, this came out throughout the hearings that the parents were very committed to their own set of principles. And there was no judgment call in the society that their principles were right or wrong. What was at issue is that there's legislation that fits this fact situation, says this kid needs treatment, parents are not consenting. It doesn't leave a scope for making assessments as to whether or not the parents' own ethical considerations ought to be given more significance than the medical profession's opinion. So what we were faced with was information that was coming through from the hospital, a concern that they had a, a, a duty to report to us this fact situation, and then we have a mandate to go in and protect children. And that's how it got started. We were in a uh, very difficult uh, position because, first of all, I had only met Mr. and Mrs. Gordon that morning. Lawyer Stephen Smart who represented the Gordons at the hearing and at subsequent court hearings. I did not know them well. I knew that on that day they were saying no to chemotherapy, but I did not know how far that went. Now, there was another element that was at work that one had to deal with as a lawyer, uh, not knowing your client. I was hearing evidence from the evidence being tendered by Children's Aid that suggested that maybe Mr. and Mrs. Gordon were extreme people, they were overreacting. There were very brief allusions that suggested that this was a mother who had a premonition about death and that she always believed this child would die. And it was sort of along those lines that uh, there was some uh, suggestion by the evidence being given that, you know, here is a mother who wants her child to die. And that made a very difficult decision for me to know whether to put them in the witness box that day. And quite frankly, my decision and judgment was on that day it was not appropriate for them to get in the witness box because I did not know enough about them and I was hearing certain allusions to them that suggested that they might be painted as people that would be fringe, uh, I don't know how to express this, but people on a very remote thought pattern <laughs> that weren't uh, thinking logically. Now. Uh, I think what we've all learned in this case, and it comes out in spades, is that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gordon are extremely loving and thoughtful parents. Nevertheless, the Gordons never testified at the hearing. The case for treating Andrew was made by Dr. Victor Blanchett. He argued, on the basis of a study done in Boston, that Andrew had a 23% chance of cure. The Gordons say that they were originally told that Andrew had a 60 to 70 percent chance of cure, and that Dr. Blanchett himself had told them two days earlier that he had a 50 to 60 percent chance. The hearing continued into the evening, and at midnight, Judge Joseph James gave his decision. 
the most difficult he had ever had to make, he said. He granted the Gordons' request for an adjournment so that they would have time to prepare a case. But he also granted interim custody of Andrew to the Catholic Children's Aid Society so that they could authorize an immediate start to chemotherapy. The Gordons would have their day in court, but meanwhile, they had lost their son. What happened was that suddenly we realized that not only did we not have the right to make any medical decisions in, in the case of Andrew's uh, treatment, but we also had lost the child, and that was so devastating that I just uh, felt that I couldn't live with that. I couldn't go through this horrible treatment, this treatment where this child needed our full support and full emotional care uh, that only we could provide, and we weren't even his parents legally. I realized suddenly that the children said if they didn't like the way I looked at them, that they could actually throw me out. They could even, you know, legally ask me not to visit the child because I had nothing to do with that child legally at that point. So uh, it was that pressure of, of feeling that we had to at least, if Andrew had to face chemotherapy, at least he should have parents to support him, that uh, made us agree to treatment. Unable to bear the idea of giving up custody of Andrew, the Gordons were forced into a negotiated settlement. The treatment would proceed, they would get back custody, but the Catholic Children's Aid would remain involved and retain the right to make all medical decisions. This agreement held until February, when the Catholic Children's Aid withdrew from the case on the grounds that the Gordons were now cooperating with treatment. Andrew has now been receiving chemotherapy for six months. The treatment was successful in putting his leukemia into remission and thereby possibly extending his life. But he has also suffered the usual side effects of chemotherapy, including extreme vulnerability to infection. One such infection nearly took his life in January, but he recovered. Would the Gordons have decided on their own to accept chemotherapy if they had been given the time and the space to make up their own minds? Probably yes. The second opinions that they finally got were generally in favor of it. But Agnes Gordon still feels that she has not gotten the information that she most wanted. We still haven't got the main information that I felt was crucial for me to find out if this treatment was really worthwhile and justified, and that's to find out exactly what has happened to the children that were treated with chemotherapy uh, that were under one year of age with AMML. We still have not found out anything about that, and it seems to be impossible for us to find out. I've been asking the doctors ever since to give me this information. I have been asking different people in the hospital, nursing staff and clinical instructors, um, and I have, uh, they uh, just told me that they cannot give me that information. The last time I talked to Andrew's doctor about this, he just said that uh, he didn't have the time to give me that information, and that uh, they had already provided all the data that I need, and that I should just not even think about this kind of things. Agnes Gordon's quest for information has also been frustrated by the lack of studies of Andrew's specific type of leukemia. Leukemia, it turns out, is not a single disease, but a group of diseases. The name of Andrew's variant, acute, myelogenous, myelomonocytic, describes how the various types are mixed in his case. 
as far as I can find out, it is one of the worst possible types to have, and the fact that it was diagnosed under one year of age makes the outlook even poorer. One doctor whom the Gordons contacted told them that he knows of no survivors at his hospital. In all of the available studies, Andrew's type of leukemia is grouped in with less deadly strains, which means that figures like Dr. Blanchett's 23% probably overstate Andrew's chances. Andrew's therapy, in other words, is experimental, and the chance that it will cure him, though real, is a long shot. So the question that has to be asked is whether this justifies the decision of the Hospital for Sick Children, the Catholic Children's Aid Society, and the family court to impose this treatment on the Gordon family before they were able to come to an informed decision on their own. The case has been costly for the Gordons in many ways. The law firm of Osler, Hoskins and Harcourt, which represented the Gordons, billed them for only a fraction of their full fee. But this, and other expenses, have still left them $7,000 out of pocket at a time when their resources are already severely strained. And the emotional costs have been even greater. The legal battle has really taken a toll on the family. Um, it uh, meant that for a long time we couldn't even sit down and really try to come to terms with our own feelings about Andrew's illness. And I think that it's now that, that all those feelings are coming out um, a lot later than they would have come out normally because we were just pitted into, into fighting. We were kept so busy by, by, by the court procedures for a while there that um, we never really had the time to grieve. And I think that now we are starting to really feel the pain. You know, I think that I, ha I can come to terms with the fact that I have a very sick child. And even with the fact that I might lose the child, uh, I think that what I cannot come to terms with is the way we were treated through this illness by the hospital and by the children's aid and by the courts. I just cannot accept that. The Gordon story raises a number of important questions about the rights of parents. This family were forced to submit their child to a painful and problematic therapy with a relatively small chance of success. Is this acceptable to Canadian public opinion? Should decisions like this be made in the courts? Or should families be permitted to make up their own minds in cases where the outcome is in doubt and where the consequences of the decision will be entirely the family's responsibility? In the balance of tonight's program, I'll try to come to grips with some of these questions. the intensive care unit of the Montreal Children's Hospital. The head nurse here is Frank Carnavale, a man who has been something of a crusader for parents' rights. Most healthcare professionals, he says, believe that people faced with serious illness are incapable of making major decisions, and that includes the parents of a sick child. In my work with parents, uh, in my research with parents, I am so uneasy with countless accounts by parents about how they felt powerless, useless, in the way their child is in hospital and they don't feel like they're a parent anymore. The hospital doesn't let them parent. 
and to to walk into a system and and not feel like you can sort of be your child's advocate, make important decisions for your child, participate in the care of that child, uh, it, it is a frightening experience. It's it's I can't even describe the the expressions that so many parents have, have made to me about just feeling powerless, feeling useless, feeling like you failed your child at a time when they were most in need. Frank Carnavale tried to illustrate some of these problems for me with a story, a story which he thinks typifies the conflicts which can occur between parents and professionals in a pediatric intensive care unit. Let me tell you the story about Cindy. Cindy's a 10-month-old gal who was born with a birth defect. With the defect that she had, there really was no chance for her to have what we refer to as a normal life. She probably could not live beyond late adolescence or early adulthood if things went well for her. She would die at that age. And, and likely, toward the end of her life, she would have several years that, that would be very uncomfortable for her. So this child underwent major surgery to correct this defect. It's felt, based on research, that there's an 80 to 85% chance of surviving the surgery and there's about a 60 to 70% chance of surviving the surgery and having a normal life with a close to normal lifespan and being able to do what we consider normal things. Now, this child's surgery did not go very well. Her lungs did not recover from the surgery very well and she had to be on a respirator for uh, four to six weeks. She had multiple infections uh, in almost every part of her body. She developed uh, what we refer to as renal failure. Basically, her kidneys uh, stopped functioning. She, as well, through the course of all this, then started having some seizures, uh, convulsions, and developed some neurological problems. So it would likely not be normal neurologically as an outcome of all of this. And I remember a time when I spoke with the mom sort of into the third week of all of this. She told me, I had no clue that these things could happen. I subjected my daughter to this, and, and I don't know what to do. I want it all to stop. This is terrible. Uh, this is not fair. I should have known about the possibility of these things. What am I going to do? I summarized these comments before a physician that was uh, very highly involved in the care of, of this, this girl, and uh, he, he responded to me, Look, Frank, I'm surprised you don't know this already but I really don't think parents are capable of making major life-and-death decisions about their children, about their children's life. They don't have the medical knowledge, and they want us to make those decisions. Even at a time like this, where maybe she, she wants to see it all stop, she doesn't understand what's going on with her child, and she's not capable of making those kinds of decisions. That is our burden. And frankly, if she disagrees with what I'm doing, I'll go to court get a court order, and I know the judge will give it to me. I know what's in that be child's best interests. I've been trained to know that. And I'll see to it that that child gets what she needs. The whole care of this child resulted in tremendous conflicts among the healthcare team because a lot of the nurses had formed a very strong rapport with the mom, with the father, with his family, with the child, and, and felt that it was likely not in the best interest of this child and family to continue and that we need to have an, a, a place where this family can state their wishes. This physician did not see that. He even went on to tell me about there's something that in healthcare that we refer to as informed consent. 
well, this physician explained to me, he says, you know, that's a farce. He says, uh, I can go in there and get them to agree to anything because I, I, I'm going to sell it. I, I'm going to tell them what I think is right. I'm not going to present the other alternatives in an objective way because I really feel this is right. And a uh, hundred times out of a hundred, the, the parents have always agreed with what I've proposed to them. And if they don't, I'll go to court. That I'm uncomfortable with. The right of informed consent grows out of the integrity of the human person and is fundamental to our law. As a right of adults, it is rarely questioned, though not always respected. When it comes to children unable to express an opinion for themselves, the situation gets more complicated. Do parents, as surrogates, hold this right on behalf of their children? In practice, it seems, the answer is no. Lorna Skye is a filmmaker. Her latest film, To Hurt and to Heal, examines dilemmas in the treatment of sick children. Her two and a half years of research for the film took her into various neonatal and pediatric intensive care units. She came to the conclusion that informed consent is a fiction. There's an enormous gap between what the law requires, what the administration says it requires, and what actually happens in hospital wards. I've had doctors say to me ruefully that they thought they could get parents to consent to anything they wanted them to consent to on the basis of how they presented it to them. I've had nurses agonize over how they've watched procedures happen with, uh, with only the form but none of the content of informed consent, especially the question of surrogate consent, because that adds a whole other level to it. I think most doctors, most nurses, some administrators, all ethicists, <laughs> will spend any time in a clinical setting will say to you that uh, informed consent is alive and well and living on paper. But in terms of an actual respectful, realistic, and sincere pr procedure, it's a myth. Further confirmation that this is so comes from the research of University of Ottawa law professor Joseph Magnet. Professor Magnet is the co-author of a recent book called Withholding Care from Defective Newborn Children. In the late 1970s, he did extensive research about how decisions were made in neonatal intensive care. What did you find in relation to the idea of, of parents giving informed consent to treatments in neonatal nurseries? Well, I found that the decisional power is retained by the medical team, uh, where the parents' views uh, differ sharply from that of the medical team. By various uh, mechanisms, the medical team retains control of the decision and will impose its will uh, on the parents. It will factor the parents out of the decision. Uh, it won't inform them. It will convince them. It will mount campaigns to convince them. Uh, in various ways, the medical team uh, retains control of the decisional process. Now, I should say that the Canadian Pediatric Society's statement uh, drew attention to this and said uh, that uh, that is wrong and that uh, the medical team must understand that pr parents are the primary decision maker. And I welcome that. I think that is an enlightened response to the criticism that has been directed at neonatology. I think that's right. And I was distressed to see that in a study just conducted by uh, two uh, professors of nursing in Manitoba, where there were 10,000 uh, interviews conducted, it was found that in 90% of these uh, decisions, 
the parents were excluded from the decision. In other words, uh, nothing has changed uh, since my research, and I think that's been confirmed by other studies as well. So I think it's necessary to understand how difficult it can be to change uh, medical reality. On the one hand, you can have the court saying, do this. On the other hand, you can have organized medicine, medicine saying, do this. And in reality, this is not done. The right of informed consent applies to big decisions like whether to do surgery or whether to discontinue treatment. But little things can be equally important, and parents often feel excluded from the day-to-day -day care of their hospitalized children as well. Frank Carnavalli says that he's seen this again and again. You have this, uh, say, a one-and-a-half-year-old, two-year-old child uh, lying in a bed or a crib, and whenever the mom is there, the baby cries. And it's very frequent that the teen points out to the mom how when you're not here, the baby doesn't cry. Maybe it's not good for you to be here. And frequently, the parents just sort of, sort of respond to that. I guess they assume, well, these people are professionals and they're very, you know, very intelligent, competent people. They know what they're talking about. Maybe it's not good for me to be with my child because my child gets upset when I'm there. So you frequently see parents sort of sort of lurking behind the corner of a wall and just sort of peeking at their child around the corner of that wall, sort of seeing how their child is, but not going to their child because they've been told that their child will be upset and will cry. Uh, I, I frequently comment that perhaps when the parent is there, the child feels at ease, at ease enough to express their feelings, to express how distressed they are, to express how scared they are. And when the parent is not there, they're so terrified that they just withdraw. And I'd say that's the common occurrence. I'd say the hospital system has developed all kinds of explanations and policies and protocols for illness and also for behavior. And if you don't fit these little roles that we've carved out, carved out for you, well, you're a problem parent. Another critical factor influencing how parents feel in an intensive care setting is the behavior of the nurses. It is the nurses who give the day-to-day -day care and with whom the parents have the potentially closest relationship. There is now a movement within pediatric nursing to make care for families a much more important part of what the nurse does. Maggie Wallagora has nursed for nine years in the neonatal intensive care unit at the Shadok McMaster Hospital in Hamilton. In my own nursing career, I believe parents are very important and I try to involve them in the care as much as possible. I think that's part of being in control. I believe in primary care, and the primary care is where a nurse conti is continually involved until that child goes home. That way, I think you would avoid some of the problems parents get into in neonatal units as far as always meeting up with a different nurse, always meeting up with a different doctor, treatment changing 12 hours or every 12 hours because a different set of doctors come on. Once a month, uh, the doctors change. And I think that promotes some of the problems with parents. How well do you do with this now? And uh, we do set up some primary care for families, but unfortunately, it's in situations where parents are viewed as difficult or uh, an infant is uh, a particular problem. And sometimes, and that an infant that's not progressing and people don't want to look after that child anymore. And usually what happens if you've got a child like that, 
many times the parents are they're in a, a desperate situation. It's where they're at at that time, and not everybody can deal with that. Where's the resistance to doing this now? You have to have nursing that wants to do that. And many nurses, they like the challenge. They like the, the instant uh, intensive care, the, the initial aspect, the doing all the, the tasks, putting in all the lines, the critical first 48 hours, 72 hours, Certainly is longer that than that in the uh, very, very young gestational age baby. But I think that's part of the problem. I think that you, it's also a very intimate type of nursing because you get to know that family very, very well. And not everybody wants to be that close with an infant or with the family. Some of those kids do die. Yeah. And you're putting your emotions on the line then. It's a much more intimate experience. But it's a more rewarding experience, I feel, too. Over the last few years, as parents have become more insistent about their right to be involved, medical professionals have become more attuned to the problems that exist. Frank Carnavalli says that in his unit at the Montreal Children's Hospital, conflicts within the staff over the role of parents are common occurrences. Medical people, he says, are now more sensitized to the issues, but there's still a long way to go. I can just think even a few weeks ago where this process that's referred to as rounds, where a group of physicians and nurses go sort of walk around and go to each child and sort of review the current plan. Well, the common thing that happens there is that the parents are asked to leave. Well, I approached the physician and felt that I, I don't see how that's beneficial. In fact, I see that as being somewhat harmful. And I've had many parents tell me about how they resent being asked to leave at a time when they know major dis significant discussion about their child's condition and treatment options are going to be discussed. I'd like to be there. And the frequent response I get to that is, well, it's better that they're not there because they might hear something they don't understand and that'll only get them upset. We'll summarize it for them later on. Well... I frequently heard that, and I don't, a long time ago I even thought that maybe there was some validity to that. Well, I don't think there is anymore, really. I, I think that that's been grossly exaggerated, and I think we underestimate the capabilities of uh, members of our community. I'd say if a parent is sitting there and observing the discussion and observing the complexity of some of the decisions regarding their child's care, I think they can benefit from that. I think it's important that they see certain things are difficult to answer, and that they hear that some of the things are complex. God forbid, might they make some important and intelligent questions that come out of that. I think observing this process might trigger a very effective dialogue. I think it could be a great launching point for the parents to ask important questions about what's going on with their child. So I see it that the parent watching this process and, and participating in it is something that's probably not going to happen in the short-term future, but maybe sometime in the, in the long-term future, would greatly benefit everyone. I'd say members of the healthcare team really are, are, find it stressful dealing with the responsibility of making major life and death decisions about children, people. And uh, I think sharing that responsibility benefits everyone involved. One of Frank Carnavalli's involvements is with a new multidisciplinary center for ethics, medicine, and law at McGill University. 
and he is also a member of the Montreal Children's Hospital's Ethics Committee. He believes that medicine's ability to save problematic lives makes it essential for us to try and separate medical from ethical issues. I don't think a parent needs to understand the intricacies of the action of each individual medication to make a decision about what is the worthwhile thing to do, what is best for my child, what kind of a life do I want my child to have. Do I want to choose a treatment that gives me a, a, a small possibility of the child living with some compromise on, on, on his life? For instance, uh, he may have to go to hospital frequently, he may not feel active, but nonetheless he, he'll be there and he'll be alive. That maybe is enough. Or do I want him to just, I, I just don't want him to be subjected to years and years of treatments that are going to be very painful and uncomfortable. I don't feel that the benefits of this treatment outweigh the harm. I, I really feel, and this is I think something we need to think about, is that a lot of the dilemmas that take place in healthcare, especially regarding life and, life and death situations, we need to look at separating the ethical dilemmas or issues from the medical ones. A physician can describe the, the medical problem, can describe the likely outcome, what, what lies ahead, can describe the various treatment alternatives, but I don't feel the physician has the background, the authority to decide what is worthwhile, what is in this child's best interests. I see that more embedded in ethical dilemmas, that is, deciding what is right and what is wrong. Uh, those are things that I feel parents are the primary players in. A particularly clear example of the distinction between medical and ethical issues comes from the neonatal nursery. This was the focus of law professor Joseph Magnet's research, and he found there what he calls a pure ethical dilemma. We know that with very low birth weight infants, when they are severely asphyxiated because the respiratory system is immature, that some will develop absolutely normally with no uh, deficits whatsoever. And we know that others, a very significant proportion of others, will develop with catastrophic damage. And this is a very difficult ethical dilemma because the question is, if you don't treat them all, you do not produce any population of grossly deformed survivors. If you treat them all, you save an awful lot of children who are capable of leading perfectly normal lives, but you also produce a large population of catastrophically damaged children um, who had the indeterminacy been removed early on in the game would not have been considered uh, candidates for aggressive intervention. They would have been allowed to die and uh, they are saved uh, with catastrophic damage. So I think it presents an intractable ethical uh, issue as to how you deal with these cases. And since diagnostic techniques are imprecise, since there is a large degree of indeterminacy in the case, we're confronting what I would call a pure ethical uh, dilemma there, where medical factors are just very much secondary if they're relevant at all. For this reason, Joseph Magnet believes, with some qualifications, that life and death decisions should be left to the parents. It's the parents' tragedy, and the decision uh, for the medical care of the child is for the parents. Now, it's an awesome 
decision. And we ought not to become habituated to life and death decisions. I don't think we should bureaucratize it. I don't think we should institutionalize it. It should be recognized, frankly, for what it is, an awesome decision. And I think that we should make sure that parents don't have recourse to this for frivolous or arbitrary reasons, and that although they should be left a margin of appreciation to decide what to do, there must certainly be many cases where uh, no rational, responsible person could come to a decision for death. And the community, I think, ought to have a check on the decision in those cases. But the, pri the parents have been numb by tragedy. Uh, they uh, have to deal with the tragedy. The primary decision is theirs. They have a margin of appreciation to make that decision for death or not. And only when they've acted utterly irresponsibly in the sense that no responsible person could say that they have made the appropriate decision, then do I think the community ought to interfere to take the decisional power away from them? This question of whether parents have the right to refuse treatment has now become a vexing political issue in the United States. It began with what was called the Baby Doe case in 1982. The case involved a baby born with Down syndrome and several other serious problems which would be fatal without surgery, a type of surgery by no means assured of complete success. The parents chose to let the baby die, and a lower court upheld their decision. The baby did eventually die, but not before the President of the United States had gotten personally involved. Jeff Lyon is a reporter who followed the case for the Chicago Tribune. He has since published a book about life and death decisions in neonatology called Playing God in the Nursery. As a result of this baby doe case, right to life groups, disability rights organizations and others began to put a great deal of pressure on President Reagan. And he responded um, in the short term with a telegram to each of the nation's hospitals receiving federal funds warning them that uh, it was a violation of the 1973 uh, Civil Rights Act which prohibited a discrimination against the handicapped uh, in any operation involving receiving federal funds. Uh, that, it would, that for a hospital not to treat a disabled newborn uh, would be a violation of that act. This was followed up in the long term with a series of regulations called the Baby Doe Regulations. They required the posting of notices in all uh, maternity wards and uh, nurseries advising that uh, uh, it was a violation of, of federal law to withhold treatment from a disabled newborn and uh, the rules also set up a, a nationwide 800 number, a hotline, for people to call. It was nicknamed the Baby Doe Hotline. And uh, uh, if people thought there was a, uh, a situation in which a child was being deprived of care, they were invited to call Washington. And a, a team of investigators, which uh, quaintly enough was known as a Baby Doe Squad, would be dispatched and, in fact, in a number of cases, were dispatched to offend, uh, allegedly offending hospitals. Uh, some uh, 50 such investigations were conducted under the regulations in their short uh, lived uh, in the short period in which they were in effect. And uh, in no case was it found uh, that the complaint was bona fide. The baby doe regulations were eventually struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court but not before the issue had become a political and an ideological battleground.
So far, this has not happened in Canada, but the issue is unresolved and many questions unanswered. Think, for example, of the story with which I began tonight's program, the case of a family compelled to submit their baby to a therapy which they believe has only an outside chance of success. This is not at all the same as the classical case of the Jehovah's Witness family who refuses a blood transfusion for their child. There, at least, the medical treatment proposed is relatively straightforward. The kinds of cases which we have been discussing tonight are much more imponderable. Cases where a painful and possibly damaging treatment must be traded off against an uncertain hope of success. Can doctors make these choices for people? Can the courts? Or should the responsibility lie where the consequences will finally fall? On the family. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the final program in our two-part series, Heroic Measures, Dilemmas in the Care of Sick Children, prepared and presented by David Cayley. The series was first broadcast in June 1987. Producer, Jill Eisen. Technical Operations, Lawn Tulk. If you're interested in further information about the case of Andrew Gordon, write to Baby Andrew Trust Fund, Box 111, 71 Rosedale Avenue West, Brampton, Ontario, L6X 1K4. And if you're interested in a printed transcript of this series, send a cheque or money order for $5 to Heroic Measures, CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>